Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Scuba. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not a Diving Podcast. And this week on the show, we are returning to a theme that we covered on early episodes quite a bit and haven't talked about too much in recent weeks. And that is the extent to which musicians, and I guess creative people generally as well, have to use that creativity to earn a living in different ways. Obviously, the pandemic did awful things to the market in various creative industries, particularly in music, particularly in live music. And, you know, there's been a real pressure on people to think about their sort of business model in different ways, have more strings to their bow, be more open-minded, I think, about the ways in which they put food on the table. And my guest today has been really good at doing that over the course of his career and we talk about that in detail during the course of the conversation. He is of course Plastician, one of the original dubstep cohort. We talk about early dubstep a lot too. We get into similar territory covered in the Apple Limb episode, that is the early forward landscape of early dubstep. And there's just loads more to discuss with him too, not least web3 and nfts he is a part of the friends with benefits dao so dao's get some serious discussion in this which is something i've wanted to get into in a little bit more detail haven't had a chance in recent weeks so yeah there's some all sorts of things coming up in today's conversation it's a really good one i've got to say thanks to everyone for your positive feedback to last week's show with dave clark we had a pretty meaty discussion on that show too and um yeah thanks to all your comments thanks to all your as i said feedback so just before we get started 
today. Leave us a review or a rating wherever you're listening to this. I know this is getting boring, me saying it. There's a little bit of news coming up about how we're going to be supporting the show going forward. But for the time being, leave us a review or a rating on whatever platform you listen to this. Hit that five-star button. Join us in the Discord, hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord. There's a not a diving podcast server in there. If you have anything to say about the show, get me on Twitter too, at Scuba Official. And finally, follow the Spotify playlist, a link to which is in the show notes, along with a bunch of other stuff, as usual, too. I will be back after the main conversations, tap releases. Thanks to all of you supporting my release from last week, Glaskin Remix. Yeah, I'm happy with that track. I'm glad you like it, too, if you're one of the people that's told me that. So, yeah, I think I'm going to stop waffling on now. Without any further delay... Here is Plastician. Plastician, welcome to the show. How are you doing, mate? I'm good. It's good to be here. I know uh, I was confused a minute ago when you texted me and said it's Paul, and I just like thought it, it, I was about to get scammed. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, as we, as we mentioned on that text exchange, the world of Web3 is... Um, it's prone to that. And you're you're deep in the mix in this Web3 thing. Yeah, I think I kind of fell down the rabbit hole a little bit a few years ago and just trying to figure out now how much use all of this technology will be to people like yourself and me. I mean, I, I want to dig into that totally, but I've got a question to, to kick off, though, on, on this topic, which is, like, what is your what is your reaction to the sort of virulent anti-NFT crowd, which seems to have, uh, well, the anti-NFT movement, particularly in music, which seems to have developed? What do you say to those people? Do you know what? Like, I kind of get it as well. Like, I'm not, as much as I'm very much pro Web3 and the ways that I think that it's going to, like, help and benefit a lot of us, I can understand how people who maybe don't understand what the the NFTs are or why you might want one or what they might be used for would just be like, oh, trying to do a cash grab, trying to burn the country down, trying to burn the world down. All the things that, you know, if they've not bought an NFT or owned one or understood why you might own one versus just buying a download or, you know, anything like that, really. I can totally understand why they might be a bit adverse to the idea. But um, but yeah, hopefully, I think that's kind of where people like us have to come in and say, oh, well, maybe NFTs aren't what you think they are and hopefully show them what, what maybe they should be and how they should be thought of instead. So do you have like a like a standard response on, on Twitter? Because I mean, Twitter is where this whole thing tends to play out, isn't it? It can get pretty heated. But like, do you have a sort of like go-to set of points that you try and get people to get their heads around? Because I mean, it can be just pretty adversarial, can't it? Sometimes people go yeah. pretty, pretty mad on it. But like, is, is, there a, is there a way of doing it that kind of, kind of de-escalates that you found? Do you know what? I don't, I'm still trying to find like that classic, like what is my response to it? But I think, uh, you know, 99% of it you can just ignore because I think it's almost like bot replies of people who just want to pile negativity on anyone who mentions NFTs anyway. Like you'll find a lot of people that kind of come back in your responses about it are people that don't follow you. So they're probably just resp- responding to anyone that mentions an NFT or a music NFT or something like that. But I guess because the technology changes and moves so much all the time, if you're not up fully up to date with what's happening, you know, the response would change very often as well. But I think that 
initially there was kind of a, a film that went round that was something like number goes up or something like that that was about <laughs> you've probably seen it loads of people always sort of quote that like oh you should watch this mate and it's like yeah I've, I've watched it and the points that the that were raised in that are valid if we're talking solely about the ethereum blockchain you know a lot of the sort of problems with environment and costs and all that have already been kind of navigated on other chains and um, if people are a little bit more open to the idea of owning nfts off the ethereum blockchain as long as you've still got the utility, then why not, right? And I think that a lot of the problems that were raised in programs like that were very like short to medium term problems in that these are problems that the chain faces now, but in a couple of years time when NFTs become some something normal that people don't even realise they're using, um, you know, the problems of environment and costs and all those things won't even be a problem anymore. So I think as much as people kind of quote things like that back to me, I'd say that my my general comeback is mostly that, you know, any of the problems you're reading about now are probably not going to be problems in the next six to 12 months. Sure. Yeah, I mean, just just the pace of change in it is it's bewildering. To be honest, I actually find it, I find it a bit of a barrier, you know, to, to really getting involved in it because, I mean, I, I do follow it and I've been a, you know, I've been a crypto I sometimes say investor, but really, I mean speculator. I've been a crypto speculator since like you know 2017 or whatever on, on on that run of it. But just the pace of developments within different different parts of it. Just I mean within the coins, but also within DeFi and within DAOs yeah. and all that all that side of it. It does seem just to move at a million miles an hour. And anything which is going that fast, there's going to be there's going to be bad aspects to it and good aspects on it but just just inevitably yeah. and especially with the amount of money that's that's gone on just, just sticking on nfts for a minute as opposed to the other sort of facets of of the whole blockchain web3 stuff like how do you see like the future of nfts like slotting into the way we the way the music industry works i guess in in the context of like the, the traditional model of artist makes tune, sells tune to fan. Yeah. You know, how do you see that in a kind of me- the medium to longer term kind of environment? How do you see the NFT kind of like slotting in in I, that kind of way? I think that they will, I think they won't replace everything. They'll almost be like a new medium that we can release through. So um, I think in sort of like me- medium term, you could sort of treat an NFT as like a bit like the way we might use something like Bandcamp, right? Where you have your kind of downloads on iTunes and you can stream it on Spotify or you can buy the vinyl or the cassette or whatever it is that you're selling, but you also can purchase an NFT version of it. And I think at the moment people will be like, well, why would I do that? Um, Because maybe their preconception is that NFTs are expensive or pointless. And it's like, right, okay. Well, that's up to us to show people why they're not pointless or what, the benefits of having an NFT versus like just downloading the file or buying the downloadable version of it. And I think that maybe in sort of medium to long term, an NFT purchase will replace like the classic download that we used to sort of spending our money on Bandcamp maybe because, um, you know, you get the same files that you would have got from Bandcamp, but you also get this like digital proof of purchase that can be limited to X amount of copies or, you know, almost like a digital vinyl pressing, if you like. 
um, which we've not really had the opportunity to do before. But then you also have the benefits that you can cook into that NFT by giving the purchaser access to the next thing or early access to tour tickets or uh, exclusive piece of merch that, you know, is only available to people who hold an NFT in their wallet. Um, and, you know, those things don't have to cost any more than a normal download. But if you show people what, you know, having that NFT and that sort of proof of purchase in your wallet can get you access to without us, like the creators having to manually check receipts or go back through like the purchase orders to see if that person's email address definitely did buy that release, etc. Little things like that, I think, are the sort of like mid to long term things I think you'll see. The classic one is ticket sales as well. Um, you know, you can cut out secondary market ticket sales, people buying scam tickets for events. Yeah, this is this is it, isn't it? When I first read about NFTs, that was the, just the eureka, like the kind of light bulb moment that went off in my mind. It was like, wow, this whole yeah, basically scam system that which which does artists out of like millions of dollars a year, tens of millions of dollars, can just be like it just eliminated at the stroke of a pen, basically. Yeah, exactly. Like if you. If you bought a ticket for like an Ed Sheeran concert from a tout on a website, there's no way of knowing that like that person's got a legit ticket or, you know, you're buying a correct one. Whereas with an NFT, you can sort of like check that it belongs to the verifiable collection. You're buying it from the collection it, that it exists with, which might be like the Glastonbury ticket collection or something. It's like all of these NFTs are individual Glastonbury tickets. You get to the door, you know, there's already ticketing mechanisms available for NFTs where like it, it, kind of like constantly changes the QR code so that it can't even be like printed out and given to someone. Like you need that app to generate that QR code at that any given moment in time so that when you cross the, you know, the scanner, it knows that that is you and you are the owner of that NFT and that NFT is your ticket, which, you know, like people like that sort of collect their wristbands and stuff like that. It's like, there. well, then you've got like a digital version of that after the festival's done as well. And people like to collect them or trade them so it kind of gives you a little bit of extra potential you know cash back if you went to Glastonbury in 2025 and then someone starts collecting wristbands they want your NFT like there's so many different weird little things that I think that will be cooked into the like that will create a much more beneficial space for ticket sales particularly like you said verifiable um people selling them on can't potentially make a profit from them. You know, the, the profit can go back to the artist and the promoter. It's, there's so much like that is the, that's the one thing I think that no one can really argue with is like, well, why wouldn't you use NFTs for tickets if you can do this, this and this? And I think everyone can kind of understand that from the music industry perspective, whereas some of the other parts of it, you'd be like, well, what's that got to do with music? But tickets is the, the classic, like obvious go to that's got to be the first port of call for nfts in our industry i think yeah it's it's crazy to me that anyone can even like remotely question that at all you know um and actually you know what you're saying before about the kind of like the the, the fun of format aspect i mean in terms of releases like to me it's just like it's just very obviously a analogous to a limited edition either CD or vinyl or whatever. We used to buy those limited edition CD singles and they'd be numbered. It'd be like one to one to a thousand or one to 5,000 or whatever it is. It's, it's just that. That's literally all it is. Yeah. But what do you think, I mean, how much do you think the, 
uh, the opposition to it, like the kind of, I mean, I've talked a lot um, on this show about the kind of forces of conservatism, like, I mean, small C conservatism within music and within music fans and within music scenes. Like how much, how much of that is at play, do you reckon, in the, in the opposition to this kind of technology and how much of it is, is just the, the crazy sums of money flying around, which are, in fairness, yeah. I, I, I turn off. Yeah, I I see both sort of sides of the penny, really, because like, it does look a bit vulgar from the outside looking in, like, oh, people showing off how much money they've got, all that kind of stuff doesn't particularly rub me up the right way either. I don't, that's a part of the NFT sort of like community or like, I don't know what you'd call it, like the kind of, the people who, you know, hark on about NFTs, like I'm probably one of them. But one part of it that I don't like is this whole, it's the community, it's this, but the community just wants, it seems more interested in it because it's expensive than because of the utility that it presents potentially. So I think that um, we're going to have like a lot of kickback for a little while until a lot of people that are kicking back maybe get an NFT and realise what you can do with it. Because I mean, I... I was one of these people. I, my, the first NFT I got was back in 2017. A friend of mine told me about this thing called Crypto Kitties. And he was like, let me send you oh, one. Oh, wow. You got one of them, really? Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. And okay. I was like, what is this? And he said, well, you can breed them and sell them. And I was like, well, why would why would anyone <laughs> buy one? And he's like, because if you breed a rare one, you can breed it with another rare one. And then that becomes more valuable to people. And I was like, okay, I get that. So it's like a game. I get it. It's just a brilliant idea, isn't it? Yeah. When you break it down like that. So I had a little go at it. I had no joy. I think I, I think I'm probably like mated about ten crypto kitties. Didn't really make any. Made probably like sold a few, but made less than I paid to like mint them or like mate them, as it were, back then. So the next sort of like re-entry into NFTs for me was like 2018, 19. Um, a friend of mine was telling me about this so rare app which is like a football fantasy football game built on nfts and i remember saying to him oh like i don't understand nfts you know i've I've had that before didn't really work out for me and but then i had a little look at, at it out of sort of curiosity anyway and i liked the idea of fantasy football where you kind of have to play with the players that you've got and there's only x amount of players on the platform so if you're one of only 50 people who've got that player and that player turns out to be the best player on the platform then naturally your NFT goes up in value because the demand for that player to win more rewards goes up. It's like trading trading up on like Football Manager or something like that, right? So um, seeing the way that worked, I was like, wow, this is amazing. Like my, I'm having fun with NFTs here. And, you know, it got me engaged in football that I never thought I'd have an interest in watching. So, you know, I'm, I'm a massive football fan anyway. But now, you know, like my weekends, I'll wake up in the morning and watch the J-League on a Wednesday afternoon. I've, se- I've seen your Twitter, man. I've seen these obscure fixtures <laughs> that you're <laughs> having over to. No, I, got, I, so I can blame SoRare for that because I literally, like, I've, I've kind of like invested in some of these young talents in like Asia. And if, if I can get up and watch the games, like you can watch the K-League on the website uh, completely legally and free in the week. So Wednesday morning, 11 o'clock, not, it's ideal for me. It's like, great, I've got my emails up. I've got the K-League in the background. I'm checking out how my players are doing. It's like, it's exciting, but it's like something that I can do in the background of like all the other work that I do. It doesn't, uh, I say it doesn't, it does take over quite a lot of my time researching. Like, <laughs> <laughs> But it became like, 
it actually became a new revenue stream for me, you know, like, cause I win rewards most weeks and then I can either like, so, so hang on a sec, hang on a sec. Can you just break down how it works in terms of that kind of revenue generation? Okay. I mean, I'm presuming you, there's, there's a trading system between players, but like, how does that whole, how does it all fit together? So the way it works is you can, all of the players like are kind of minted from like the original source from the website. Uh, you buy the players against other players who are bidding against them. Um, so those are, that's how they're minted initially, right? Every player bids for these cards. Then you get the card. And once you've got it, it's yours for as long as you want. You know, like once you could, you could put a team together and use that team for the next 10 years if you want. So, you know, you don't have to spend loads of money to get involved. But um, if you, you know, if you manage to put a decent team together and you play against like hundreds of thousands of other players, if you finish like top of the division that you enter that team in, you'll win Ethereum and you'll win some more cards and the cards you can then either keep to like better your team next week or you can sell it for where the cards will trade for Ethereum as well. So some of these cards are really valuable. I mean, like the the most expensive uh, NFT on the platform sold for $600,000. It was like an Erling Haaland. And cards are players just to yes. clarify that. Yeah, they're, they're real life players. They're all fully licensed. So they're not like, you're not buying unofficial dodgy merchandise or anything like that. It's like the clubs license these cards to the platform and then they get a cut of all of the sales when they're auctioned. So the teams are making money from it as well, which is, you know, great for them, um, especially over the last couple of years, what we've all gone through, because, you know, they are licensing cards from lower division sides in Europe and Asia and America. And it's like a new revenue stream for them, a little bit like, you know, how I see this becoming a revenue stream for musicians. It's like, well, this became a new revenue stream for football clubs and, some people might only see it as like collecting panini stickers, but it's like having a connect collection of panini stickers that I can put into a match every weekend and in and in the midweek as well, and potentially win more that I can then either keep or sell. Um, I was saying to someone the other Are you, week. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, jump in. Well, I was just going to ask you, um, one of the big early uptakers of all this tech was the MBA yeah. side. Does that work in a similar sort of way? So I know nothing about this at all. Does that work in a similar sort of way to Syria or was it more of a, just a trading card thing? The MBA Top Shots, which was the one that like you're probably thinking of, is apparently they do have some kind of fantasy game, but was more of an afterthought though that was just like own a moment in the history of the NBA so they did like little video clips of like a LeBron James slam dunk in like the finals game or something like that and the thing with that was like you know you kind of bought a pack so you didn't really know what you were going to get until you opened it a bit like a pack of stickers or cards that you buy in a shop now right so people would gamble on like buying the pack opening it and hoping that they got like some super rare moment that everyone wanted and some of those went for like ridiculous amounts of money but they were just like collectibles and they there was talk of like a game whether or not it went into a game I'm not too sure I I didn't follow it too closely Um, but so rare is different in that it's more like a game first and a collectible second Um, so you know like the value of players is, is not because like they're really well known or scored a great goal it's like that player is this year this age can score this many points on average, therefore is more valuable than Lionel Messi. Like, you know, their value is like how well they might play in a match. So, you know, you can put like a, you could put like a, a decent uh, K-League player up against a decent, like Mbappe 
or something like that and potentially beat still, you know, if you do your research. So that's why I think so many people got so invested into it because once you get into it, you, you realize that, wow, like there's potential money to be made here, but also it's, it's the, the joy it brings to like watching lower league football that you never thought you know time <laughs> if you like football so, so, it's like great in that sense so when I was playing that I'm just like wow like the potential for, for like music something like this I mean you can't, they can't really you can't really gamify the sort of support of music in the same way but you know there's no sort of winners or losers without sure. stuff that you can completely bot you know like you could do like oh who got the most engagement on Twitter within a genre but then <laughs> whoa that's a can of worms there yeah. right there <laughs> could you imagine how many bots people would be like creating <laughs> but let, let, me, let me let me ask you though like because it's not completely obvious to me listening to you talk about that what the direct value added is of web3 and that's so rare thing proof of ownership for starters and proof of scarcity so like if you tell if you had like if you take fantasy premier league as like the direct opposite anyone can pick Kevin De Bruyne, like every single manager could put Kevin De Bruyne in their team. And it right. doesn't matter how many Kevin De Bruyne's are in the game. Whereas in so rare, each season, there are like four different rarities. You've got like the yellow, which is limited. There's a thousand of each player. The red, which is the rare, there's a hundred. The, the blue, which is the super, is only 10. And then they've got a unique. There's only one of each player each season that they've licensed. So... Let's say like Kevin De Bruyne, let's say they licensed Man City um, and they mint all those players. You know that like if you've got a red Kevin De Bruyne, you're only one of you're one of only a hundred people maximum that's got that player in your team. Right, right, right. And because it's on the public ledger, it's verifiable and that's it. Exactly. It's all verifiable. You can see all the cards. They're all numbered. They've all got like an address on the blockchain. So you can see who owns them, where they've been, who's had them before, what they traded for before. So there's mad data about every card, every player, uh, their scores, everything. So it's like it's like the most pure form of fantasy football that, that I've played. And I think that, sure. yeah, that's what got me hooked. I didn't think I'd be that, I'd get that involved in it when I first did. And then once I got into it, I was like, wow this is great. And then I realized, you know, I was quite early on it as well. So when it started to blow up, like, because I had already been in there and bought some decent players, the value of those went ballistic when everyone started signing up. And I was saying to someone the other day, we were talking about like music and, oh, you seem to tweet a lot about So Rare. And I was like, I was explaining that it's become like a revenue stream for me. So I have to, you know, manage it a bit like an asset. And I worked out that the money I'd earned on So Rare last year was equal to what I would have earned um, in 18 years of Spotify um, <laughs> and you think put it think think of it like that and you think okay that's that's why I tweet a lot about so <laughs> yeah yeah the sad fact of the matter is I think if any of us were really really interested in in money then we probably wouldn't be doing music would we <laughs> Do you know what I mean? exactly but but that's not a defense of Spotify at all and to be honest like I mean, particularly in the last couple of years, I think basically everyone involved in music has had to think think about money in a bit more of a <laughs> a serious way. You know, I think like the holes in business models have just been brutally exposed. Yeah, yeah. But um, and I, I want to talk about your general approach to that because you've always been someone who has 
been quite entrepreneurial in the way you've run your career, you know, with the music and the merch and the, the label. Just stay staying on staying on Web3 for a moment, because we talked about, we touched on the sort of community aspect there. Mm. And DAOs are something which have become very big. And you're um, very involved in the Friends with Benefits DAO, aren't you? Yeah. So um, why don't you just to to the to the layman to the layperson listening to this can you break down like what a DAO is and what friends of benefit is and what you've got out of doing it i would say the easiest way to describe what friends of benefits is is just a bit like working as part of a cooperative that seeks to try and bridge the gaps between sort of web free crypto and culture but do it in a way that is a little bit more inclusive than like a brand coming along and just slapping a logo on like a great lineup or something like that so it's like how can we um fund good sort of cultural activities uh help cultural organizations um and also kind of like educate people a bit more about like what web free might be able to offer them and i think for me I joined the DAO as like a member just because I thought I would like to learn a bit more about how all this stuff kind of figures out for me as a musician. And when I got in there, I'm like, oh, there's quite a few other musicians in here. And you meet other people from, you know, record labels and promoters and like journalists and stuff that are in there. And you think there's so many people like me that are trying to figure out what this web free sort of can offer the music industry or me as a, individual in the industry um so yeah i took on they they kind of announced i think it was like october november last year that they were going to expand out to this sort of cities like sub dow so if you think of fwb as the, the kind of like the sort of like umbrella brand the main sort of brand we have like these city dows which are like a lower kind of barrier to entry but have like IRL events as opposed to just being a discord community or like a group chat if you like if you're not familiar with discord it's kind of like a cross between reddit and a whatsapp group where you've got lots of different sort of chat um topics and places to go and discuss things um and the way that fwb works is you buy a certain amount of the token you link your wallet to discord it makes sure you've got that token in and you apply to become a member and then once you've got your membership and go in and chat about all the things and get access to the information. And it, I think because there's a lot of great information online about Web3 and crypto and stuff like that, but a lot of it is, you know, f- people just pumping tokens or trying to like, <laughs> yep. whereas this was a bit more informed conversation, honest chat. This is good. This is shit. Avoid this, avoid that. And like, a lot of people in exactly the same boat as me where it's like, Oh, there's a lot of music people trying to figure this out as well. And other DJs and other producers are in there. And it, I think like for me, as much as um, a lot of people will talk to me about web free is that like, the beauty of it is we're, everyone in web free is also trying to just figure this out. Like that difference between maybe the music industry where a lot of people will like to tell you that they're an expert in this or that is like in web free, you don't really meet anyone that claims to be an expert because we're all trying to figure out, how you know the the space is still uh, maturing well, basically any expertise is just like obsolete within a couple of weeks apparently so. exactly exactly <laughs> that so so to get back into like the DAO what is a DAO a DAO technically a DAO is a decentralized autonomous organization so the reason I say it's a little bit like a cooperative is 
all the members kind of buy a membership, if you like. And that membership is theirs until they've had enough of it. You know, it's your tokens. You buy the tokens almost like shares. But then people buying the tokens and holding on to them creates like a fund almost that can be used to do cool stuff like events, uh, collaborations, you know, like all sorts of things. And then it kind of creates a brand around what you're trying to do and a bit of a more of a community sort of vibe around the whole everyone getting involved and you know if anything that we want to do it all kind of goes to a vote all of the members have like a vote based on like the holdings that they have like it's like having I guess like a boardroom if you've got like the board of a company but instead of like a few people holding most of the shares the shares are pretty evenly spread across like thousands of people well it's the uh it's it's the it's the workers rather than the management right it's exactly. good marxist parlance that's that's the theory yeah. so how is that how has that worked out in practice within your experience with F- fwb like does it get um does it ever get a little bit heated are there like you know are there different presumably there are differences of opinion that's the point of having having a vote and stuff so like yeah t- 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 tell me a little bit about that yeah i think like, my experience of it overall has been great i think because like a lot of this i think where we're at in terms of like DAOs in general is they still all need a little bit of guidance so nothing's like nothing's 100 percent decentralized um just yet you know because everyone's trying to figure out i think that there are kind of like governance um teams that kind of figure out what we need to vote on what like kind of read the room a little bit on what mem- the member base is complaining about or not complaining about making sure that that people feel heard because, you know, if this is a DAO and you're not listening to anyone, then you're not really doing your job, are you? So it's like, we so we will find that sometimes we'll move fast on something and within a few weeks we've had, we have to kind of like take another vote on it because maybe it didn't work out how, you know, it's, it is, it's a really interesting way to work. It's something that I'm glad to have been able to experience, especially so early in like, DAOs in general, I feel like I'm probably one of the few people in the country that's even employed by a DAO technically. Um, so it was just an opportunity to learn before most people and to kind of like form my ideas of it as well. And I think that in general, the experience has been really good. Um, I love the fact that the way these meetings are and the way that you know, people are heard, I, I genuinely feel like everyone's voice is heard and whether you're like, you've just joined or you've been like a member for like months and months. But I think that the way that we're able to kind of curate events and fund events and everyone's happy to chime in with like what they think we should be doing. And, but also hear back from like, obviously my role there is uh, governance and operations for the London city down, which essentially means I have to be make sure that we're putting on at least two or three events a month that members can attend to make sure that they're getting. That's that's a lot. That's quite a lot of work. It is. It is. It's yeah. I mean, it's. I wasn't sure how much work it was going to be when I kind of took the role on, but um, I stopped some other freelance work that I was doing at that time to focus a bit more on it to kind of really like get my teeth into it and f- like have a proper crack at it really. And so I've been doing the role for what about six seven months now i think um and yeah i think that some of the things that i've maybe taken away from me up to this point is that uh i think that DAOs will be a long way off like full decentralization i think every DAO that i've been a member of or had like any kind of involvement with 
I think they still need a bit of guidance from like the sort of top end as to like what it is that the DAO sets out to achieve because it's very easy for anyone to come in and just completely st- turn the ship, like steer it the other way. And um, it's interesting because you'd think that, you know, the whole point of decentralization is everyone gets an equal say. But I think that like in a creative space, you know, imagine like as a musician, as a good example of someone who you know, art has to be centralised slightly because if if I came in and told you I didn't like that snare on your last record and you had to change it, then that wouldn't be your art anymore, would it? It'd be... You wouldn't be too happy, probably. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, you kind of see that in the DAO space as well, is that like, if, if people feel like things are getting too central or too centralised or some someone like sort of small group of people has too much power over the sort of final decisions on things, then you do start to get a little bit of a backlash from the wider member group. Oh, you know. There must be like factions as well, which emerge and kind of vote in a, in a block and that sort of thing. Yeah, right? I guess there is, but it doesn't feel like there's any sort of like clicky. I think if there ever is like something that comes up for vote in terms of like governance, like for example, there have been a couple of events recently where we took on uh, brand partnerships, and it's like we need to check with everyone that w- will people be cool if we partnered with this brand? This is what they're going to bring to the table. This is what it means for us as like a group of people with this money. We think we will do this, 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 and this. If you're okay with that, vote yes. If you're not, then vote no. And and yeah, it gets put to the group like. And if you imagine that, you know, if you think of like in the music sense, some of the problems that stuff like Boiler Room had with like some of their like massive kind of partnerships and people being up- upset that they got like some funding from the government and it wasn't spread around like, uh, like maybe these are the sort of things that I think maybe you sidestep when you go the Dow route is like great. Like, you know, if, if, if you put those things to a vote first rather than just decide to do it and see how people feel about it after then you kind of circumnavigate all of those problems before they happen. So in that sense, it's been quite liberating to see that way of working because it's, you'll always get some people that'll be like, oh, that's shit. I don't like the way you did that. But it's like, yeah, it might be shit for you, but 98% of the member base were like voted for that. And, you know, here we are. And yeah, let's see how they all feel about it now. If you're just one voice... He might be a loud voice in a Discord channel, but if you only represent like 0.05 of the voting, then you've not really got a leg to stand on. And it's been good in that sense. I feel like, you know, a lot of the things, this is one of the things that we will say, I think like not just in Friends with Benefits, but a lot of DAOs, you'll notice that uh, there's been some really good writing on it that nearly all sort of proposals that go through a DAO tend to get voted through. And people worry that that's a bad thing because maybe it's that like people are being uh, coerced into voting a certain way, which you could agree. But also I feel like if you kind of signed up for the core values of the DAO that you're joining, you already kind of know that that's the way you're going to vote anyway, because they're not going to put up a proposal that goes completely against what you kind of paid to get into in the first place. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it implies that the, you know, whoever's like, as you said, doing this sort of governance and, and, and guiding the overall direction of the things that do get put to vote are probably reflecting those core values, right? Exactly. So for me, for my job, putting on events, like I have to make sure that they're diverse. I have to make sure that we're representing like across all, you know, like genders, race, sexual orientation, all of that kind of stuff. 
it has to be a nice, you know, like it doesn't, we can't do all our events in East London. Let's mix it up across like different parts of London, different kinds of events. Sometimes we'll go to art galleries. Sometimes we'll sit and have a panel discussion. Sometimes we'll go to dinner. Other times we might just sit in a pub and put like a tab behind the bar for members. Like it could be anything. And, um, you know, that I knew that was what I signed up for. So I'm constantly checking myself to make sure that like, oh, we've done too many music events in the last two months or but then also it's like that DJ part of you is like reading the room and you know, you know who turns up to these events, what kind of events do the people who actually turn up to them like? And you can see from the way that people sign up for events like, oh, um, you know, anything that we do music wise tends to have a better turnout because a lot of the members in London specifically are music industry, are label owners. And if we do something around music, it tends to be really well turned out, but also you know, like the feedback online the next few days is super positive and it attracts attention from outside of the DAO as well. Like, you know, press and magazines tend to be interested in like seeing what it is that we're doing. And I find a lot of that does come from music. So there's like, I guess the DJ mentality as well is like, you get a good read on the room, you know, like where to take it next. And up to to this point, everything's been good in terms of my experience there. And I think it's something that, is going to become more common as well. Like, especially music, like labels might start running their own DAOs for like their club nights or, you know, they might even like turn the entire label model into a DAO and like sort of share the revenue with the artists and the people who buy the music. So it's quite an exciting space. There's so much innovation in it. And like I said, it's, it's absolutely mind blowing how much it changes, but I do, I do think, um, yeah, there's a lot of learning to take from it and I'm enjoying, I'm enjoying learning. I think that's another thing as well. It's like, I don't, I didn't set out to come in and try and change anything. I just wanted to kind of like ride the, ride the, ride the tide on it and see what, what we, what good can be taken from it. And so far I think, you know, it's pretty much all good. Yeah, that's, that's great. I've just got one more slightly technical question on this topic, which is um, like, how does the, like the, the sort of pyramid structure that you described from like the, the main DAO, which is based in the States, I believe, um, cascading down to these like local yeah. DAOs of which London is one. So how does it, in terms of like the voting, the voting structures and all that kind of stuff, because I know, as you mentioned, like the barriers to entry are, are lower, um, significantly lower, actually. It's quite expensive, actually, to join. Maybe a bit less now after, <laughs> after the crash, but, <laughs> but certainly uh, it's, it's a lot more affordable to, to, to join a local one. So can you just, just give, me, give me an idea about how once you are a, a member so or even someone who's um who's directly involved like yourself like mm. like how do those kind of privileges if i can put it like that okay um how, do, how does that work like cascading down through the whole organization so the token is the same it's the same token whether you buy into if whether you're trying to get into sort of like the wider dow or like the city dows so basically the way it works is there's sort of two tiers of membership there's the uh, full tier which gets you access to all of the sort of discord channels you know, the reason like some of those discord channels get you early access to things like NFT drops, get you like voucher codes, get you lots of like different like perks for holding that membership. Um, you know, in future it might get you access to physical spaces like clubhouses, like co-working spaces as, as it expands, it, you know, it's, it's a bit like, it's often been sort of, um, coined in the, the media as like the Soho house of like, web three but it, 
It's like it's kind of like that without having a physical space. But if you think of it like without the nice bathrooms, yes, yeah. For now, at least, anyway. But yeah, it's um, it's it's like it's kind of like buying a membership to a club like that. But the beauty of that this kind of membership is, you you know, if you if you pay fifteen hundred quid for a Soho House membership, uh, you don't see a penny of that back whether you attend like their spaces or not. With an FWB membership, you can sell your membership back whenever you want to get out of it. So it's like you could you could potentially still profit from from it regardless. But you know you could also lose money. But you probably won't lose or touch wood. Probably won't lose all your money. <laughs> you never know in the crypto space, right? Let's not jinx that, man. Exactly. Let's not jinx that. <laughs> but um, but yeah, it's like so. It's kind of like a membership card that you can always sell back if it doesn't work out for you in that sense. But um, yeah, so there's there's a seventy five uh, token tier which gets you access to everything, um, and then the five FWB tier is what they call local tier, and local tier gets you into all the local channels, so like the London, New York, and LA channels. But it also means you can RSVP to the events in those cities that are in like real life events off the internet, like in physical spaces. Um, and yeah, like you tend to get like pretty good value for, for that, in my opinion, from attending like our London events. Um, you know, we'll put some, we put often put money behind the bar for drinks or food. Um, you know, we pay creators to come and talk about like their processes and we'll book DJs to play at the events that are like, you know, the kind of DJs that you'd pay to go and see at decent clubs in London. So there's lots of sort of benefits of the local tier as well. Um, and yeah, that's it basically is that that's the difference. So in terms of like the sort of hierarchy, if you like, once you're in the discord, you either have access to everything or you'll have access to the local channels and sort of like the general chat and a few other bits. But, um, yeah, you'll be able to RSVP to any of there's some, some events that they might list up might have like a different token gated access. So they might only be open to people with 75 or they might only be open to people with five, but for the most part, um, if you've got five, you can attend pretty much everything, to be honest. And uh, it's more like the kind of high, higher en- entry barrier of entry, like the festival that they're doing in California. Uh, you might need the 75 to get into that and stuff like that. But, you know, that's different tiers of, of entry or membership, a bit like buying a gym membership and like a peak or off peak gym membership. Like, oh, you can only come in at this time. If you've got like the peak membership, you can come in at any time. And it's it's a bit like that. It's just kind of like different tiers of membership. But again, these things always change as well. Like we're about to move into a new season um, at the beginning of July. And I'm sure there'll be more changes again um, as to like what different points of access are or how we run our events or because obviously we're at the moment, the events are sort of London, New York, LA. Um, we've done some things where we did like an event a series called the city keys where people in cities that weren't covered by like the city's sub DAOs could like apply to throw an event and like get some funding from the DAO for it. So there was events in like Washington, there was events in Berlin, there was events in Lisbon where people within the DAO could go, I want to throw this event. I need this much money. This many people are probably going to come. And then we said, yep, that one, that one, that one, you know, like this all sounds great. Like go, here's, Here's a few thousand dollars to like throw the event and some payment for you for like facilitating the event and working it. And yeah, sort of like allowing the members to come in and like contribute, but earn as well. So it's, it's cool. It's quite a very different kind of business model to most things. But if you applied that to like a club night or something that you want or, or even it's kind of like 
it's almost, I guess, like a franchising it. It's like, oh, you want to throw an FWB event in your city? Tell us how you'd run it. Like, do you have any like experience in running events in the past? Do you need any help? Like, who's who? In, how many mm. people do you think in the city might come to it? And then we can fund it. And it's like that was all. Those, those things are all funded initially by lots of people going. I'll buy some of that and hold on to it. And you know, then brands come in and like, we want to collab with you. Like, we've got this much money, and then that money comes in. And it's like, right, well, we have to let everyone know what we're doing with this money. Um, and then, you know, like a big chunk of it will go into the sort of like community fund that funds all these cool events that we get to attend. So, yes, it's, it's a really exciting, uh, kind of fascinating business model that is hard to explain because it changes so often. But yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you've made a pretty good stab at it. Um, it's been illuminating. So, um, okay. I obviously want to get into early dubstep and all that stuff with you but um mm. <laughs> before we do that i want to let, let me just ask you a question which is sort of related to what we've just been talking about and i mentioned earlier that you've always been someone who's had a lot of strings to your bow in what you do in music you started the terrorism label early on you've always been a big merch guy and there's a there's a very kind of healthy I used the term entrepreneur before, and I think it's probably a pretty accurate description for you as a person. So, like, how have you seen it over over time? I mean, we we got started in music almost exactly the same time, actually. I found, yeah. In fact, this is the second time I've interviewed you because one of my first things that I ever did in music was interview you, if you if you recall. It was twenty years ago. I know that uh, is not a not a statistic that I may keep in this podcast. I might <laughs> cut that out, but. <laughs> But yeah, you just started having your breakthrough with the sort of early proto dubstep, early grime. I think it's probably fair to say it was the stuff that you were doing. You were still called Plastic Man, yeah. and and let's um, maybe you're free to talk about that after the um, the, the litig- litigation. Yeah. Um, but but just talk to me about uh, like entrepreneurialism as something that you have done over time and how you see it. How, just making a living in music, I suppose, is, is what I'm asking you about. Like, yeah. like how is how have those things um, you know, gradually developed and how have you found making a, making a living in music over that sort of pretty long period? So I think that a lot of it came from, um, you know, what, obviously I was one, I, first and foremost, I'm, I'm a DJ in my head, right? I've, I've, all the production and everything else I done was almost like to try and further the DJ career. And then maybe some things end up getting more carried away than others. But I think it was like starting out in music distribution and learning how to sell records to shops. And it was like, right, well, I know how to press vinyl. I know how to get it in the shops and I have the contacts at all the shops that might buy something. So once um, I've made those contacts, it was like, once I started making my own music, um, and I'd had a couple of releases under my belt. I was like, well, why wouldn't I start a label? I know exactly how to press records. I have all the contacts. I know how much everything costs. I know how it works. So it wasn't difficult for me to like get straight into running a label and knowing how that run. So um, that was like quite a natural next step from, you know, DJing and then producing to try and get gigs and then running a label to try and get more beats. So, so what year was Terror Rhythm? Started? So I think I started Terror Rhythm at the very end of 2002. So I think the first release was like probably a couple of months into 2003. Almost exactly the same time as Hot Flush actually. Yeah, yeah, I think it probably was actually. I think like in terms of the records that were coming out, it probably was like almost within a few weeks of each other. But um, 
yeah, so I've been running it since then. Initially, it was kind of like an outlet for my own music, but uh, I used the first couple of releases to like uh, call in the favours that I'd like done on other people's labels. So like Mark One was the first release. Uh, I, had, I had a release on his label called Hardcraft, and he kind of returned the favour, giving me one called Fight, which was the first release on the label um, in 2003. And um, yeah, so then from there, it was like, you know how it was back then. So from sort of like 2003. Let me just clarify to the audience that Mark One is now part of Salado. Yes. So yeah. For people that don't know. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's such a strange like uh, flip on what he was doing back then, but it it works. In fact, he's, he's going to come on the podcast. Actually, I've, I've already asked him. He's definitely coming on. He'll be he'll be a really good, uh, good conversation. Actually, he's a good lad. I'm still in good in touch with him. I, I see him quite regularly. He's a good lad, but he's um, yeah, I mean, like to. So I think like we were all kind of in the same boat around that sort of time where from 2003 to about 2006, we were, we were gigging f- semi-frequently, but not earning a great deal of money for each gig and spending quite a lot of money, maybe traveling, but also cutting dub plates and like making sure that we had fresh music to play, you know, pre like the CDJ era. I mean, we did kind of have CDJs, but I, none of us really liked using them, if I remember rightly. It's funny you say that because me and me and El Sid were the were the outliers, and we we did not uh, go down well with our well preference for CDs. Mate, yeah, I used to use Serato. I don't know if you remember back in two thousand and five, and if anything went wrong at the venue, it was always my fault for unplugging an, an audio cable somewhere. Like, <laughs> like literally, that the whole power could cut on a venue, and it'd be like that'll be a uh, Chris sticking his Serato in the back of the mixer, and be like. What with the, with the phono cables, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it was always my fault if anything happened. It was definitely something to do with my computer being plugged into the mixer. But um, but yeah, I think that was. I think Serato for me was like the beginning of me actually like starting to take some money out of music and like put it away for rainy day. So it was like not cutting dub plates every week was saving me like hundreds of pounds every weekend. So I could actually. You know, back then when he was earning like a couple hundred quid a gig, that money was gone by next weekend because I'd like cut dub plates and go out boozing with it. And like, and then then I got Serato and it's like, oh, I'm saving a couple hundred quid a week here. Could actually like, I was working like part time with my dad, doing the label, uh, going to college. I was like studying music tech at college and I ended up like knocking, working with my dad on the head to like concentrate a bit more on making music and and like doing the gigs and stuff and yeah then obviously like the whole sort of explosion of grime and dubstep happened and I was right there when it all kicked off I was like one of the few people that I was probably the only person that that real explosion that was had a foot in both sounds really like yeah absolutely let me stop you there though because I want to dig into that in in more detail let's just keep on on the um on the entrepreneur side, so I want to kind of link this into, you know, your, your eventual, what we've just been talking about, the Web3 thing. So like, obviously there's, there's the label and then your DJing became obviously much more profitable over that, you know, it was a period from like, I guess, what, 2007 until well, maybe 10 years, right? It was, it was, a, it was a big thing. Yeah. Um, and, and probably up, and, up until much more recently, actually, in fairness. I guess what I'm asking you is like, was supplementing that, because loads of DJs just, you know, just DJ at the weekend and, and that's it. And just like, yeah, fuck it. And lots of the just literally just piss it away, frankly. Yeah. But you've always been someone who seems to be, be a bit more, bit smarter than that, you know, and, and has an eye on, on different revenue streams and, and being a little bit more, I don't know, responsible with it. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's totally fair, to be honest. I think uh, 
I don't know. I think that I, I probably in sort of my mid to late twenties was a little bit more like gung ho with my money in terms of like started earning quite a lot of money from like maybe 2005 up to around 2009, 10. It was like, you know, s- silly money, more money than I could spend. And I saved a lot of it and like put the deposit down on my first house which, you know, is still the house I live in now. So I say the first house, like I've bought multiple, but uh, yeah, my, my f- the sort of deposit to get out of my mum's house, essentially. So where a lot of people were happy to like rent um, and, you know, spend all their money for like those sort of four or five years, I think I just kind of knuckled down, started putting money away. It didn't really stop me from being silly. Like I still went out most weekends when I wasn't gigging and spent loads of money, but I didn't, I didn't have a flash car or a like nice expensive watch or loads of designer clothes or anything like that. I just saved it. And I think that um, when the kind of the first sort of dip in my career happened and realizing how quickly you can like not be, not be like the hottest person on like every, every promoter's sort of hit list and noticing that change, which was for me around, I think 20, so the end of 2012, to like the very beginning of 2013 I was in I lived in LA for three months um because I had a bunch of gigs at the beginning of the year and then some in March and I was like I'm just going to stay in America for three months and just see what living out there might be like and if there's the same sort of opportunities on weekends that there is for me in living in the UK just to see you know have a bit of a lifestyle change and take an opportunity while I was still young and didn't have kids and stuff like that and had a great time came back from that trip, had like a fairly busy festival period. But then after that, there was not a great deal of that kind of, you know, like the uni students going back. And there wasn't that, like, I think like that summer was the summer that like Nero had like all their success. And then Disclosure came out and it's like when Disclosure happened in the mainstream, dubstep wasn't quite as like popping yeah everyone started playing house yeah right? it was like that's what that's it. we we have talked we have talked about this on the show before talked about it with machine drum talked about it with Roscoe. yep yeah everything changed everything changed and and being right in the middle of that change even though like for me in my head i was like well that won't affect me because like i don't play straight up dubstep anyway and the sort of stuff i did play then was not nowhere near as hard as like most kids wanted to hear it it was like i went fairly hard but like i kind of stopped at at a point um, which meant that you know like when I played in America I was not as in demand as a lot of the other DJs from our sort of circuit were because I didn't I didn't play hard enough well yeah I mean I have you played in Denver for Nicole yeah 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 it's black box so she was on the show a few weeks ago and we, we, we were discussing this this very issue and the kind of advent of the real kind of hard stuff the excision Skrillex hard stuff mm. and how and she, she actually observed which I hadn't really thought about before but it makes total sense she observed that like in that period that you're talking about the sort of 2012-13 that there was a real sort of dip in the UK guys and it seemed like definitely yeah. a lot of the UK guys sort of like the sort of wind went out of their sails yeah they either stopped or or like they went hard or or they just kind of fizzled out 
or they just went or they just hibernated for a bit and just carried on doing what they were doing yeah yeah and i'm think i'm thinking about the you know the because i was obviously on, always on the sort of deep side of it but but by then i'd i'd left the scene completely i was mm. doing i was doing house and techno and so I, I wasn't really exposed to it too much but i was just thinking about people like i don't know distance mm. um and the, you know the, the guys who were doing pretty hard stuff but were definitely not not America hard, yeah. Full on, kind of like, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so I think like as hard as I would play, like I, I think I definitely played like some sort of Casper stuff and that when I went out there and obviously Scream and Benga stuff and Joker and like that was hard to me. But then I would, I didn't really play too much of the American stuff. I played a bit of Twelfth Planet. Well, yeah, I mean, compared to Excision, that stuff is is, is not hard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So so when I played out there, I was quite happy to play like warm up for someone else who would play harder. But I was happy to just like be on tour, be playing like sold out shows, and I was more than happy to play warm up. Like I've, I've never been that that precious about like when I play, so long as like I can enjoy the set that I'm playing. So I was quite happy to play the warm up sets out there. It didn't didn't co- cause me any problems. But then coming back and this like coming back to the UK after that was the dip, and it was like wow, you know. In the in the UK, like that super hard dubstep sound didn't really ever become a thing apart from in sort of cons unless you are Skrillex or someone like that. And it's like, you know, then you can still sell out venues in the UK. But if you were a DJ playing that kind of stuff, you kind of had to wait until you got booked out in America again. Um, mm. So when I came back through all that, it was like I was still playing like a kind of mix of dubstep and grime. And, uh, you know, like I played other tempo stuff like on units, early stuff and all that stuff that we were putting out through the label around those times as well. But um, then I started playing even slower stuff on my radio show. It was like, oh, I want to play. Came back from America and I had a bunch of guests on there, you know, like had people like um, Gas Lamp Killer on the show. And I mean, I did have Skrillex on the show as well. And a load of people on the show like that came through in L.A., and played loads of different styles of music. And then when I came back from America, I was like, I'm going to continue doing that on my rent show so that I can play all the stuff that I like rather than just like what I think people would expect me to play if I was in a club. So my radio show became a bit more of a mixed bag, which I think also threw a bit of a spanner in the works for me because I don't think promoters knew what I was going to do if they booked me. And it's like, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, not yeah. sure yep. if people are going to like what you play. That's a bit too chill for us or... And like some of it was, you know, like I was playing like 120 beats per minute, like halftime stuff, like really chill, like wavy, like sort of like mellow trap meets burial. Yeah, yeah. I want to ask you about wave, certainly. But let's just uh, finish up this entrepreneur question, though. I mean, everyone has peaks and troughs in their career, right? Yeah. I mean, that's just that's just inevitable when you've been doing it for once you've been doing it for a long time. That just just happens. So so how did you how did you deal with that sort of drop off in, in like revenue, I guess, is, is this the question? Like, I think that's where the entrepreneurial bit really kicked on for me was like, right. Um, you've got a label, you know how to run nights. You, you know, you know, the in- industry inside out now, by then I've been like working industry like 10, 11 years. And it's like, right, well, if you've not got gigs, you better get some music out and you better like start figuring out what the sort of direction is for the label build the brand, like rebranded the label, started putting out all kinds of music on it that I thought was cool. Built like a really nice sort of community around it, a lot of like good, a good buying audience on Bandcamp. Then it was like, right, let's do some cool merch because merch, like, you know, the, the sort of returns on merch, if you can sell it, is great. So I started thinking about how we can do something that's a bit more than just like a plain sort of Gildan t-shirt 
it's like do a few of them but then like we created a football shirt that was like completely like created like cut and sew uh, f- like in uh, sort of based off of an old football shirt we did an event in Amsterdam around it and just started to think a little bit more like a brand than just a record label and try and you know like build a bit of a community around that so lots of different artists lots of new genres lots of new sort of like emerging sounds and supporting a lot of those artists on the radio and you know then I was seeing a lot of report support back so like my rinse show became like a bit of a kind of had like a cult status in the sort of SoundCloud era era of like beat making. So like people who who were making all kinds of beats would send me like exclusive stuff. And, you know, people like Muramasa, I I think at one stage Muramasa's SoundCloud page was just radio rips for my show because he didn't want like the full versions up. And um, I almost signed him actually. Um, I had like, we had like discussed on DM, we was going to do like a mixtape and then he got like a new management and they were like, oh, they got him a great deal somewhere else. Oof. That's what happens, man. But yeah, like, you know, like around that time, I was about a lot of the sort of hot producers, you know, pe- people like Kay Trinada on the show and loads of like cool stuff happened in that time, but probably went completely unnoticed because I wasn't as like prevalent on the club circuit. But the radio show was like going gung ho. And I think like for a few years, it was sort of like the radio show filtered into the record label which then filtered into selling merch because people were about what I was doing and um yeah then it was like you know then I got into mate I you know I decided to leave rinse in 2017 I mean there was before that there was like a little bit of a resurgence in grime sound again when like Skepta popped off and it's like Skepta's popping off let's book Plastician again and you know I found myself touring doing shows with Boy Better Know quite a bit again around 2014 to 2017 um, and then, yeah, I think like I decided to leave Rinse in 2017 because I, I just felt like I was, I kind of owned my platform a little bit, but I was kind of lev- leveraging it a little bit more to like Rinse's brand, but didn't really get the, the kind of bring-ins on the festival stages that they were doing because the sound wasn't really, you know, for festival stages potentially. I think I was finding that same problem with the, like the rinse team as I was with like the general sort of promote our uh, public like oh we like what you do on the radio but we don't know what you're going to do if we book you at like love box or something like that so yeah I just kind of like come to a point where I was like do you know what like maybe maybe I can have a go of like building something like this myself and I thought like can I create like my radio show into a podcast and initially I thought I looking into how I could do that but do it like all above board I tried to speak to people at Spotify about doing a music show as a podcast and there was just so many problems and loopholes it didn't happen but then stumbled across this like interactive virtual reality streaming thing on Facebook and I got speaking to the guy that I saw was doing this insane sort of 360 streaming and I was like can I DJ in that like could we like do live audio in that and uh, we decided to build out this sort of VR live streaming thing called Unreality Journeys and that was in 2017 so for about three or four months, I just like went gung ho on that. That was like all I was working on. Um, and, you know, we picked up 130,000 live viewers on a Facebook stream one day. And wow, that's great. We had a meeting with Facebook because they saw what we were doing. We're like, this is insane. How are you doing this? And then I had a meeting with a company that built like VR games. They were like, how did you do this? We want to build a game, blah, blah. We built an app. Or I'd say we, like my, my business partner, who was like an insane developer, he built an app on a phone that basically gave like augmented reality 
capabilities to like really shitty old iPhone 4. He's like, I can turn an iPhone 4 into like an iPhone 8. You just do it all in the cloud. Wow. And we presented this to this guy. And he was just like, how did you do this? Who is the guy who did this? <laughs> like the guy that he used to be head of, uh, head of Sony PlayStation Europe, the guy that we presented it to. And he was like, I want in a hundred percent. And it went, we went, we went all the way to that. And then literally the night, the day after that, I had a fallout with the guy who built it. Like a really, a, a really petty fallout that like, you know, I thought I was doing him a favor. He didn't take to it correctly. Uh, he ended up like not speaking to me for like two days. And uh, we ended up having a discussion after the weekend and everything just got put to bed. So we got, we got that close to like, oh, what would have easily been like a seven, eight figure deal. Oh no. Yeah. No. And just watched it all. <laughs> so all of the sort of conversations I'd had with other brands and other companies up to that point, I had to go back that week and just be like, well, I kind of took a week out to just like, I was completely deflated after that. We'd worked so hard. Wait, so you, so you basically decided between yourselves that you couldn't do it per- on a personal level? We had a fallout that was just like, as far as my business partner was concerned, was like unfixable. Irreconcilable. Yeah, he, and he just kind of like, he went off, he just went off the hinges a little bit and I tried to sort it out. You know, I thought I was looking out for his best interests. He didn't appreciate the way that like, that I like approached him about like taking some time off and kind of attacked me as like, oh, that's you being lazy. And I'm like, mate, it's like no big deal for me to do a stream from my bedroom, like on a Sunday, I'm just saying like, let's take the weekend off, like relax. We've had a busy week. And that turned into a big argument. And on the Monday, the whole thing was done. It's like, wow. You know what? It's, it's pressure. Pressure does horrible things to people. And when you, when you're presented with an opportunity like that, the pressure, even if it doesn't like feel like pressure, it is just like ramped up. Man. ramped up man. He, he'd absolutely nailed it he'd been working on it all week and he you know he i could hear in discuss discussions with him that like the he needed a rest he needed a break it was like you you're putting too much on like we've built this entire app like take a week off i'll deal with like the investment deck blah 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 do all the sort of business side and like we'll we'll, we'll loop back in with him next week like well done and he didn't didn't take particularly didn't like that. Oh man! Oh, so yeah, the whole thing. So like, come like the Monday, I kind of take a, took a week out. It really knocked the wind out of my sails because we'd been working so hard on it for months, and we built it to the point that like it was being spoken up in loads of tech blogs and stuff as this is something you should have your eyes on and. We was like, wow, we've done just just between like two or three of us kind of like knocking heads on a Zoom call every couple of nights and built this like sort of following up for it and everything was just going to better than we could have hoped. And yeah, just had to knock it on the head. But then in doing that, I had to go back to a lot of the people that we'd had meetings with and say, look, I, I can't believe I'm telling you this, but it's done. We can't do it anymore. And, you know, um, I'm sorry, I can't really explain beyond that. And they were all quite understanding about it. They were really gutted, but gutted for me. And like, it also opened, but it opened a lot of opportunity for me because the people I've met were like, we really like working with you. Could, would you like to work with us on this or that? So uh, like a time where I'd found myself like, 
I wouldn't say like it was another dip as such. It was just a different time for me in and a different headspace and a time in my life where I've got kids now, you know, if there's an opportunity for me to do some work in the week for someone, earn a bit of money that doesn't put pressure on me getting a gig like every, every weekend. And I was like, yeah, I could like give up a couple of days of my week that I would have been doing that to go help someone on their business with some idea that they got. And that brought me to work with the pirate studios team for like f- oh, right, okay. four, yeah. y- four years I spent there. And, you know, I still speak to them regularly now, made a lot of friends there, love, still love what they're doing. And we work together on bits and pieces here and there now. But um, yeah, I worked, worked um, sort of building out their DJ product when they started building the DJ studios and the production studios and sort of doing bits of A&R to like for their live streaming, figure out like live streams and, just like a bit of everything that I was doing there, but really enjoyed the work that I did there. And, and then now, you know, it's the Dow. It's like working for FWB. And, you know, when that comes to an end, I'm sure there'll be something else that like I decide to poke my nose into for a bit, but it's, um, yeah, it's just like a, I guess it is like an entrepreneurial mindset where it's like, I want to keep doing music, but there's not a great deal of money in the streaming royalties or, you know, like the gigs are great, but, I can't, I can't force gigs to come in. If like, you know, I'm not on the radio every week. I don't produce music at the, like the rate that a lot of other people do. So I can't like always represent what I'm about as much as other producers might be able to. Whereas, you know, I, I DJ lots of different styles. When I do produce, it tends to be something that fits between this and that. And so I don't really have a sound that other producers might have. It's like, I, I kind of, I see production as like, I need to build something that sounds like this or this so that when I'm DJing, I've got stuff that I can mix between it. Um, you know, I'll always kind of be chipping away at that in the background, but I'm quite happy to like explore other avenues to earn. And most of the time they're still relevant to music. Yeah. And, and a sort of feature of it seems to be that it's stuff, which is really forward thinking as well. You know, it's really sort of like everything you've just described there has been, really at sort of the, at the cutting edge of, of developments. Yeah, trying to be early, always. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that comes from DJing as well, though. I always like to be yeah, interesting. the first yeah, yeah. one to play this. And I think that's the same with anything. It's like, if I see a window to get involved in something that I think might be interesting in a year or two, and I think that was the thing. It's like, here's an opportunity to work for a DAO. When are you ever going to get that opportunity? I like probably never like I never thought I'd have got the opportunity to work in the crypto space but here we are I'm, I, if another opportunity shows itself where I can work in some other kind of discipline then I'll probably take that like it's just it's kind of exciting yeah I mean I've, I've got to come to one of your events man I'm actually a member as you know yeah. of the uh of a London one and I've never well actually I, mean, I don't live in London at the moment which, which makes it a little bit difficult but I'm back and forth a bit so I'm gonna you fucking sold me hard on these events, man. I'm, I'm, yeah, we, <laughs> I'm definitely we, coming down to one. We've got a good one in, in July at Fabric, actually. So that'll be a good one. Oh, really? What 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 dates is that? It's um, the 6th of July. It's uh, it's like a it's a kind of crypto art and music conference. So okay. we're going to kind of curate the uh, the music for, for that. Got a pretty stellar lineup, which I can't disclose just yet, but I might tell you off here. Nice. But... Um, but yeah, we got some like incredible sort of augmented reality, uh, NFT art, uh, digital art, 
uh, projections, like all, all kinds of stuff going off inside fabric. So it's going to kind of look a bit like an art exhibition, but we'll put, we'll have music on in the background too. Cool. Well, yeah, I'll definitely come to that. So, okay, right. Now, dubstep and garage. Mm. Let's talk about this. So I had Apple Blim on the podcast a few weeks ago and we discussed the early days of, um, of dubstep and of forwards. Yeah. Uh, you definitely came from the garage side, your, your route in. Yeah. So, well, I'm, I really enjoy, one of the things I've really enjoyed on this, on doing this pod is of getting different people's perspectives on the same sort of time period. So, I mean, L- Laurie came from very much a sort of techno and sort of like that kind of like electro brain dance direction and somehow made his way into into plastic people one day I, f- I forget exactly how but it was you were very much uh, like in the kind of typical lineage yeah. I mean I'm pretty sure were, were you at, were you at the first one the first forward yeah I did go to the first one but I didn't know anyone there really the first one I think um, yeah that was that was exactly the same as me so it was at Velvet Road that's right obviously not not the classic plastic people so can you just tell me before we get into forward can you just tell me like your route into being someone who turned up at the first night forward, if you see what I mean. Yeah. So I think for me, it was like buying Garage and like in Big Apple, obviously Hatcher worked there. Hatcher's classic Del Boy. So let's let's clarify that. Big Apple is the, the rec- was the record shop in, in Croydon, right? Yeah. In terms of that, there was a few record shops, but that was the one that, that, that I used to frequent for sort of like, if you like Dark Garage and that kind of two-step stuff, that was like the more prevalent of like the two or three record shops that we had. Um, the other one we had was like Swag Records, which became famous a bit later on for like Tech House and stuff like that. But um, that's a whole other story. But uh, but Big Apple was like the haunt, if you like. I also went to school with Hatcher. So he was like a familiar face behind the counter and he recognised me from school. So it was like, oh, go and kind of see someone that you know. Okay, hang on. Give me a Hatcher at school story. There must be a good Hatcher at school story. Oh. <laughs> The story of Hatcher at school is he was never there, really. He was, uh, he's, he's in the year above me, so I didn't have, I don't have too many Hatcher at school stories, sadly. He's more like the person, I, I remember knowing who he was because he was, he was like the one who was on and about sort of pirate radio. Not many people at the school were on pirate radio. So like him and Leonard, like MC Easy Rider, God rest his soul, uh, mm. were in the year above and they, you know, there were tapes of them too on pirate radio that that would do the rounds among like the, the years below. So it's like, Oh, that that's the guy who's the DJ on the radio station. It's like, that was really cool back then. You know, like it's a bit different now to like a lot of people in school who are into electronic music and that probably like the brainiacs of the year. But back, back when I was at school, like it was all, all, all the absolute wrong uns that were like, hanging out <laughs> yeah. at like there was all the dodgy characters that were doing pirate radio and stuff like that so Hatcher was definitely one of those and then yeah he was just the guy in the shop had the massive like bracelet on ridiculous like gold bracelet um and chains and that. <laughs> he's chain I've, I've got a Hatcher story go on from a bit later which was uh, when we were all on rinse pretty sure he used to play before me or may- maybe it was just someone who who um, at one of the meetings who had um who had complained about him not turning up to his show <laughs> and he as you say had this enormous fucking gold chain it was ridiculous <laughs> and his his excuse for not coming to his show was he didn't want to get on the train wearing his gold chain <laughs> 
<laughs> that was literally his excuse. He's like, I, I couldn't get on the train because this this thing I was wearing, I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. That's a beautiful excuse, considering that that guy drives everywhere as well. Like back then, he used to drive that little. <laughs> bright purple Renault 5 Turbo. Do you remember it? I don't know. But like, he used to squeeze about six of us in the back seat of this tiny like Renault 5 Turbo, play his, his own mixtapes the loudest possible. So he had like subs in the back of the car. He was just getting pounded by like his latest mix. And uh, he used to pull up into the petrol station. He'd only put Evian water in the like water filters. So he's such a character, man. But um, yeah, I think just like, him naturally being that guy in the record shop that you recognised, and then you know I'd bump into other people that I'd bump in into the record in the record shop. So I met people like Chef and Scream and Benga playing the sort of house party circuit of the Croydon sort of house parties. It was like you'd always turn up with your garage records, and there'd be a bunch of other DJs, and you jump on. and I met Chef at a house party. I met Scream at a house party. I met. Benga, at, I think I met Screaming Benga actually not at a house party. I met them at um, one of these sort of like garage showcase type events where like the local radio stations would get a bunch of their DJs on a lineup and you'd all end up playing for about 20 minutes, trying to outdo each other, but playing almost the same set. But um, yeah, I, I remember bumping into Scream at the record shop a week after one of them and he was like, oh, you played at that thing the other day, didn't you? And that was how we kind of bumped into each other. And then I remember spotting him when I was in my car coming home once, drive, driving home. I spotted him on the road and I sort of gave him a beep and asked where he, I gave him a lift to like, I think he was going to the hospital or something. I can't remember, but that was it. That was sort of like bumping into loads of people, meeting them. Then, you know, naturally sort of hanging about them in the record shop. You'd spend an afternoon just sort of sitting around hoping that someone might come with a delivery of records. So you might get the latest sort of bingo uh, test press or or like another one was like the old sticky records and stuff like that trying to get those test presses before anyone else so you had them on the radio for like weeks before they went on like sort of general sale in record shops so I used to frequent the record shops all the time and then you kind of become a bit of a preferred customer so you get looked after they put records behind keep one under the counter for you in case you came in and that was it, it was just like hanging out with other people who all kind of had the similar interest in music and meeting people like N-Type who did the radio and it's like, oh, start making beats, give them to N-Type. Then it was like, oh, you know, if you want Hatcher and N-Type and these people to play your beats on the radio, they need to sound a certain way and then you all start to sound the same. So we're all starting trying to make this garage that didn't sound like garage and then I was like, I could make grime. So I was making grime, but no one in Croydon was really playing the grime that I was making. So when I started sending it to Slimzy, he started playing it on the grime side. Then there was a bit more interest for what I was doing a bit closer to home. So let's let's put that in a little bit of context, shall we? Because I think quite a lot of people listening to this might not be familiar with Slimzy. So basically what had happened was uh, Garage had sort of like begun to fragment, right? It, into this kind of, mm. there was a super commercial side of it was in the charts and like it was this huge thing but then the kind of mc driven grime side of it had really become to get big mm. and there was a there was some some bitchiness wasn't there between the two sort of factions yeah i seem to remember like quite a lot of um the old garage heads yeah they they used, they used to refer to it as the grimy stuff and uh you know it was like it was often sort of talked down as like the kids version because the production was like pretty basic compared to what 
you know, the garage sounded like. And it just, it wasn't, it was a bit aggressive, a bit too dark, not very clever. That was like the kind of talk that was going on around about it. And, um, you know, most of us had been trying to cut our teeth in the garage circuit for years by now. And we weren't getting anywhere because it was just like, unless you knew someone, you weren't getting booked at Sun City. You weren't getting booked at Twice As Nice or any of those events. But, um, but also like, you know, you're going up against like MJ Cole exactly, you know, as a yeah. producer. Do you know what I mean, it's like, it's not, not easy, is it really? Uh, no, you can't even like begin to have a conversation with MJ Cole when you're like a 20 year old messing about on a PlayStation or something. Right. So <laughs> right, yeah. it was, yeah, it was like that for a while. So I think it was almost a bit like when it did start gaining traction, it was mostly young kids, a little bit like if you can imagine now all the kids that like do TikTok dances to drill music, it's probably like if that, if we had TikTok and all that back then, it would have been grime. That would have been the sound that all the kids were like really into. And yeah, Slimzy was like the one DJ in the sort of like grime scene, if you like, that was just head and shoulders above everyone else in terms of playing unreleased music. So you would always, as a DJ, get the Sidewinder tape pack to hear what Slimzy had played because anything that he's playing on that Sidewinder tape is probably going to be coming into shops in about two or three months. And so if you had any music that you were making, he was the guy you needed to get it to. It was like, all right, if you make grime, you want Slimzy playing it. Cause then he's got Dizzy Rascal, Wiley. He's got all those people on his sets. And if they spit on top of your beat, you instantly got like a hit when it comes out. And it was like, right. It took me about a year to like build something that I thought was half decent to send to him. But then, yeah, the first thing I'd sent to him, he, um, signed it to his label and that was like my first release what was the name of that tune just remind me so it was venom and shockwave like there was the two a and b side so that was my first release and like i think like slimsy giving that the cosign put me straight into like the upper echelons of the scene even on my first release it was like there weren't too many release artists releasing music back then you like you could probably talk about about 15 to 20 producers like jammer wiley uh dizzy rascal genius uh wonder who else you got? Um, Maccabi unit. Like there really wasn't many big shot. Like there was, it was a handful of producers. So like finding myself like bang in the middle of all of these sort of producers was like, put me on the map straight away. You had a great run of tunes though, as well around then you, you really banged out like a load of really, really strong stuff. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I, back then I, I made music for fun. I think that that's what's something that changed over time was like when, when it was fun, it was like, I would treat, and I think I said the same thing with Scream before, he was the same. It's like, you don't play computer games, you literally just turned Fruity Loops on and started messing about, and that was your evening. It was You'd entertain yourself doing that every night, and you didn't do it because you had to, you did it because you wanted to. And yeah. I, I spent a good couple of years of my life just making beats all the time. I wish I could get that buzz back. I just never had it since, but... Uh, that I think that comes of age and you know responsibility. I was living at home at my mum and dad's and could stay up at all hours. Didn't pay no rent. Just like messing about till the early hours of the morning in my headphones all the time. Yeah, it's definitely that kind of lack of responsibility, isn't it? I think you hear it in the music as well, right? It's quite, it's quite like childish and fun music when you listen back to it in a way that yeah it's just like just don't give a fuck right it's you can just hear it like. yeah there was no patterns there was no sort of chord progressions or there was no real builds and there was a few sort of basic structures but it was more like what will this sound like in the club and that was the only thing I cared about when I was making beats back then 
It didn't matter. I mean, just the fact that there was a there was a, a genre called eight bar. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that just yeah. says it all, doesn't it? <laughs> That's it. And a lot of the stuff I was making back then was pretty much like that, or very much like was influenced by that. So it might have been like that eight bar kind of energy, but I'd try and structure it slightly differently. So let's um tell me about forward because um Laurie and I, Apple and I um discussed it's well the basically the period between. Like obviously it opened then it wasn't it wasn't a dubstep night when it opened because there was no dubstep. It was a kind of dark garage, breaky garage sort of night. And then up until two thousand and six with you know, the whole with Marin Hobbs thing and, and DMZ's second birthday and the whole thing just going supernova, there was a long period of not much going on. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And there were only a few of us and, and you were absolutely one who were, you know, reliably to be seen yeah, down yeah. there. There was literally like 30 or 40 of us most of the time, right? There was like next to no one at, at a lot of the events for years. Yeah. I mean, did you ever consider like giving up? Oh, yeah. Like, tell me about your, your kind of journey in that period. I don't think it was, I think giving up's maybe a bit strong. I never really thought, I remember talking to Hatcher about this recently because I remember around the same time that Dubstep started to really blow up. Hatcher was taking a lot of garage bookings again and was like starting to promote his own garage nights. And it was almost like you could sense that, you know, the wind was getting knocked out of his sails because we'd been sort of chipping away at this sound for three or four years, not really getting that far. Like we kind of like felt like we maybe had reached our peak at like getting a few shows on rinse, which was like great. There's a few of us playing on rinse now, but beyond that, there's still only like 50 people a month coming to forward. And, you know, it's not, it's not going to be, I never felt like it was going to do what it did. Um, so I guess that that was my thing was like, I definitely didn't see the explosion coming and I didn't expect it, but I was quite happy to just plod along. You know, I still, I still got to tour. Um, I got to travel quite a bit doing it. You know, I, I did Japan in like 2004 and mm. did um, like America a couple of times. I did America every year from about 04 on to, yeah, until recently, until pandemic pretty much. But um, I was quite happy. I was like, I didn't, th I wasn't sure if it would become a living at that point. I was quite, I was still working. I was at college. I was living at home at the time. So I was quite happy with it being a hobby that I got to travel with, where some other people were like trying to saw it as a potential living. I never thought I'd make a living from music ever. It's, it wasn't until you know, I started, I mean, even when I left that distribution job and I started a label, I didn't think, I thought it would always just be a bit of fun on the side from doing a normal job. Mm. Um, it wasn't until maybe sort of that, that sort of 2006 onwards where it's like, right, putting some money away, let's try and kick on with this. And then the boom happened 2006, seven. And it's like, no, you can definitely make a living from this if you're careful. And that was the big thing for me. But I don't know if I ever felt like, oh, give up now. It was always like, I was quite accepting of the fact that this is as good as it will get, but it's cool. It's fine. I didn't expect to make a living. Yeah, I was the same. It was basically a fun hobby, really. Yeah. And it was just like, what else am I going to do with my time here? It beats like, you know, spending more time reading football websites or whatever. Do you know what I mean? It's like... Yeah. No, I was. I think that's the difference between back then and like when I meet producers now they they have everything out in front of them they can see the path to like success and the path to full-time employment in music and we didn't really have any of that i was like I, the idea of working full-time in music was just completely alien to me i was 
I've barely been, you know, invested in music in terms of like my interest in it. Apart from my interest in music in school was all quite like, you know, I listened to it and I enjoyed it, but I didn't think I'd pursue a job in music or like a career in it at all. I was just into football and sport and I thought I'd be like working in a leisure centre or something, like being a physio or something like that. That was kind of where my head was at. But now, you know, you meet these young producers and they haven't even had their first release and they're like eager to like get on a festival lineup or do the, and it's like, I never thought I'd play a festival. I'd never thought I'd play like (laughs) in, in America. It was never even a thought in my head. Like, whereas now you can like bounce your first beat out of Ableton and you're already thinking about, right. When's my next gig? When's my first gig? I've got to get my first gig now. Who's going to be my manager? Yeah, exactly. And none of that was even like, that was never even in my thoughts. Like it was, you know, like the fact, even like when we started releasing music as well, it was wild to me that people in America were hearing it. Cause in my head, it was just like this little segment of like the offbeat offshoots of garage that were buying my records. So like when people like John Peel play it on the radio, it's like, how did he find it? Like, (laughs) this is not his genre. Like, and that I genuinely lived in this little bubble that we were this little pocket of the garage circuit like I didn't think people who listened to drum and bass knew who I was. I didn't think people who listened to techno knew who I was. I didn't, I didn't think anyone outside of this sort of like 50 to a hundred people knew who I was. So yeah, the thought of it becoming a career was never really something for me until it was presented like in my lap. So tell me a little bit about the, about the explosion then. Cause obviously there were those two very obvious events that happened with, um, yeah, with, with Marion Hobbs and obviously then the, the DMZ night. Yeah. But just in the, in, the, in the kind of aftermath of those things, tell me about how your how like your personal career just took off as it presumably did. Well, you've said it did. Yeah. yeah, I mean, even before that. So I was on the BBC for a year and a half before that happened. Um, so I was on the Radio 1. Oh, were you? Was it? Yeah, so what was the show? So when John Peel passed away, um, they started this show called The Residency or In New DJs We Trust as it went on to be called. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was I was part of the first iteration of that show that replaced John Peel's when he passed. Got it, yeah. So I got um, a show on the BBC to present like the first ever like grime and dubstep specialist radio show on the on radio one. Am I right? Sorry, if I can just, just interrupt you there. Was it, is it fair to say that that was more for your grime sort of reputation? Well, not so much because they kind of had grime on one extra. It was more, it was more so like the fact that I, it was the, it was the straddling between the two. And I think that according to her meet, John, John Peel liked how I played the sort of stuff that I played. Right. And, it was like having a show that kind of ticked both boxes on Radio 1, whereas like they were trying to sort of like dip their toes in, but, you know, they didn't need to give it a weekly show. There wasn't that much of an interest in it, but it was good that they represented that sound. And it was like dubstep and grime because I played both. So it wasn't a dubstep show. It was a dubstep and grime radio show. And um, that, yeah, I was doing that for a year and a half. And I mean, like when, so just before Marianne Hobbs, did the dubstep boys show i think my my show was coming to an end around that time i knew that my contract was not being renewed for another six months or whatever it was and the reason they gave me was that they felt that um there wasn't enough interest in the sound and that marianne's show probably like ticked the box enough at that time it's like you know not enough people are interested in this sound we feel like marianne kind of like does enough on her show to like represent it I was like, okay. And to be honest, I couldn't really have much of an argument against that at the time. 
And then literally over almost overnight, dubstep was happens closely followed by the DMZ birthday and everything changed. And within a few weeks, they, I think like they were on to scream and banger about having a weekly show that then ended up being a primetime show. It's like all of this happened in the space of a few months. It was insane. And it did. It went from not thinking we'd ever have a career here to having like a decent amount of money coming in every week and being able to save money and, you know, still go out and spend money and still put money away. It was like amazing. And so did you like, just in terms of the way you, you, you dealt with that kind of professionally, like, did you have a booking agent prior to that, for example? So I, I did actually, I was quite early on the booking agent. So like Rebecca Prochnik, she met me at the, I think it was the first ever DMZ actually she came to it and um, heard me play there. And she said that she was looking after like DJ cameo and a few sort of like grime DJs. And she, she was like, Oh, she looked after like a few MCs. So she looked after JME and I'm not sure actually she might, I think she looked after like Tinchy Strider, crazy titch, uh, lady fury and a few other MCs like East based MCs. And she was like, would you be up for doing some sets with MCs? And I was like, yeah, hundred percent. Um, but I was probably talking to JME on like MSN and said to her, oh, like, what about JME? Brought JME in and brought Skepta and Jammer in. And we ended up doing a bunch of shows with like Skepta, Jammer, Crazy Titch, uh, all of these MCs. And I was like, this is great because she was like putting me in a room with all the MCs that I wanted to work with. And we were touring together and we were getting to know each other. And that was like what I was already doing in the dubstep world. I was already really close friends with like all the dubstep producers and labels and DJs. But uh, people in the grime scene knew me, but I didn't really link up with them and hang out. And then all of a sudden I'm like, great, Rebecca's put me in like a flight with these people and we hang out for the weekend and we really got to know each other. And so, yeah, I she was looking after my bookings um, from about 05. So she was giving me a lot of bookings through there. She like, you know, facilitated a lot of those early gigs for me um, in, in around, out, outside of the UK, particularly like Germany and stuff like that. So she was looking after me when everything blew up. And then I think she picked up shortly after like the explosion, she also picked up Mala and Scream. And she was looking after like, you know, a lot of the like the JME Skepta Wiley, but she also had Mala, Scream, Benga, she she had a lot of the sort of like big the first movers in that sort of like dubstep explosion um at that time a lot of them sort of moved on or you know Mala's I'm pretty sure she still looks after Mala now um but yeah she she was looking after me then but yeah like she just kicked me into another realm of like you know I was gigging some weekends I'd do like five gigs across two nights and stuff like it was absolutely insane for a couple of years I'd definitely would have been one of the busiest in that initial explosion I think um if not if not the busiest I was definitely I was definitely the first of our lot to like go to a lot of countries and Rebecca was a big part of that definitely and presumably good money as well right yeah I mean you know initially it starts out but like that a lot of the sort of money was not like massive but it was so busy and then it was like you could literally afford to just turn shows down. So then naturally like your fee goes up because yep. you you can either say no or you can just quote more money. And, you know, if they can't afford it, then you, you go up into the next echelon of like bookings. And it was like, I, I, I used to like, it used to like rack my brain. She was like, something would come through. It's like, oh, 
someone's hit me up like they've got 500 quid for me to do a gig on a Wednesday in Croydon I'm like great let's let's loop you in with the agent and she'd be like you can't do that gig I'm like what why it's literally down the road I have to like why would I not do that gig it's it's like easy money she's like yeah but if you do that you can't do fabric on the weekend and I can get you more money for that and I was like what I just did not understand it but do you know what like agents know what they're doing and there's a reason if you say yes to everything you won't be able to say yes to like the really big things and you and it's so true like you're like you sort of like uh agents are really good at seeing a bigger picture of like seeing like where they can place you if you do this this and this instead of that and uh I didn't see that. I was just like, every gig is money. And if I only have to travel 30 minutes for it, then why would I say no? Yeah, right. I mean, that's what you pay them for, right? You're you're paying them for strategy and expertise, basically. And she was just like, she knew about all of that. She had all the contacts. If she said no to that, she could say something, yes to something that was going to earn me double the money on the weekend. And it's like, well, that makes way more sense than what I thought we were going to do. So you know, I've always just trusted her to do that. And, you know, she still looks after my gigs now with Kaylee at um, Earth Agency. And yeah, this has been like 15, 16 years. I think she's been involved in my bookings now. Yeah, that's great. Okay, so last couple of questions. Mm-hmm. First of all, I've got to ask you about the name change. About the name change? Yeah. Do you know what? The This is like, at the time, it felt like the end of the world for me. I think that like, um obviously it was re- so let's let's just uh explain okay what, what, what it exactly was so you were called plastic man originally with a, with a c yes so i was releasing music as plastic man the reason i did that is like i i in the garage days i used to dj as dark star right not the dark star that everyone has heard of since but i used to be called dj dark star and then i started working at the record distribution company and we used to distribute rewind magazine into the shops um, and they said, oh, do you want to do like a review, a page of reviews? Um, and my boss was like, yeah, like you can just review all the music that we're distributing, like give it a good review and like we can sell some copies. And I was like, well, if I'm going to do that and if I'm going to slag people's music off or not, I don't want to put my name to it. So I used to review music as the plastic man and, and, and like covered my face in the pictures and stuff. So then when I started making beats, it was like plastic man because people were sending me music by then. And I had a, that probably had, more of like a thing about it than the what I'd done previously as Dark Star. So I kind of did that. And then obviously start releasing music. I'm thinking nothing of anything. Like to be honest with you, I'd never like Googled it to see if anyone else was called Plastic Man or anything like that anyway. So it wasn't until I think like I was in the record shop one day and Arthur like Magnetic Man artwork was working in the store and he said you're plastic man, aren't you? And I was like, yeah. And he went, do you know there's another plastic man? And I was like, no. And he went, well, he goes, there is one. I've got to play some of his music. And he put this record on. Um, I can't remember, can't tell you what record it was, but he, he picked up one of these plastic man records and played it. And, the, and my head, all my head heard was, well, this is techno. That's not my music. So right. He, and he went that and, and he went, so yeah, now you know what plastic man is. And I went, well, he's never going to hear my music. So, and I genuinely meant that. I was like, and then I can't remember how much longer down the line it was, but I think the sort of like the straw that broke the camel's back for it was I did a remix for Alter Ego of a track called Rocker, which came out on Skint Records. Um, and, you know, that had an Errol Alkin remix on the flip. It was like very much my name in like the circle and the circuit that 
like Richie Horton had obviously operated within and been massively respected in. And here comes this kid who doesn't know what he's doing using the same name. And like at the time I remember thinking, oh, well it is spelt differently. So that's fine. But then, yeah, obviously there was like, um, you know, the kind of like, we got like a kind of like a legal letter sent through that was like, we'd like you to stop using the name because of this, this and this. And I think like, it was at the same time I was joining the BBC. So it was like, let I had access to the BBC's lawyers. And I said like, I've been sent this letter. Um, do I have like any kind of grounds to kick push back? And they said, to be honest with you, no, because it sounds the same. Like if you mentioned it on the radio, then there could be confusion there. And I was like, okay, I get that. No, like if you make it sound different. So, you know, plastician is still only one letter different, but it sounds completely different. So it's like, uh, I went with that, but yeah, I genuinely thought at the time, Oh, this is the end of my career. Like no one's going to be able to find me on social media, like all this stuff. (laughs) And, uh, but back then social media was literally my space and nothing else. So it was like, yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. There wasn't much like worry in that sense. Like it was really the beginning of my career, but at the end of it felt like I was at the peak then and I'd barely started. But, uh, but yeah, do you know what? Like I've been, I've never met him face to face. Um, but I think that there was one, there's two, two little stories I'll give you, right? The first story is, um, so in one of the things that did bother me a little bit about the letter was that it accused me of using the name to like get business when actually like something quite the opposite had happened at the same time. And I told them, you know, like, I appreciated this, but I just want to let you know this happened. And if you ever got that email, it's because I sent them to you because I knew that they were, they meant for Richie and not for me, but I basically got an email or MySpace message once from this guy. He was like a filmmaker and he was like, Oh, um, we're making this film about tribes. It's incredible. It's going to be like, you know, it's going to be on the discovery channel. We do this, this and this. And one of the people in the edit suite, put your music to it. Um, I'd love to show you the film, uh, can you like, do you want to come and meet me at like my residence in Ascot? And I was like, wow, this sounds amazing. Like, so I drove all the way to Ascot and this guy's like cooked dinner for me, sat me down. He's got this massive screen in his house and he starts talking about the film and all this incredible work they've done and all these tribes they met and this f- incredible footage of this film starts. He's like, I'll show you a film. And I'm sat there in his house eating like chili con carne that he's cooked in this like beautiful house. And, uh, the film starts playing and he's talking, he's like, obviously you recognize the music. And I'm like, oh, I don't recognize the music. Ah, (laughs) So in that moment, I'm like, oh, I think this is probably someone else's, but I'm waiting. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm just waiting for it to kick in. Maybe I haven't like, and then these sort of clouds are parting and it's all these incredible, like slow-mo of like tribes, like cutting apart this like cow and it's like brutal, but it's like really, the, the footage is insane. And I'm like, this, at that moment, I'm like, oh, I'm going to have to tell this guy that he's got the wrong plastic man. Like, and I basically had to tell him like, look, I'm, I'm going to have to stop you. Like, I think you've got me mistaken for someone else. Like, <laughs> this is who you want. This is his name. Like, oh, no. got his website up on his computer for him. I was like, this is the person you need to speak to, not me. I'm really sorry. And he's like, oh man, I feel really embarrassed. And I was like, mate, like, it's an honest mistake. And I said, to be honest with you, like, you've probably just like woken me up to the fact that uh, I could be like mistaken for this person, which up to this point I'd have argued blind that like it's spelt differently and it's not. And 
yeah i was like that and so like i told them i think i seem to remember replying to that email like uh you know just to let you know like i've never knowingly profited using his name like i know that that's part of the thing but you might have got an email from this guy if you did i put him onto your team because he he was looking for but anyway long story short the decision was made to change the name change the name and then you know like more recently like i said i've never met richie horton and i think as i've got older as well obviously my my musical sort of experience and taste has, has uh, broadened a lot and can fully respect like what that must have how stressful that must have been for him because if someone tried to call themselves plastician now and start making i'd, I'd be like whoa hold on a minute mate like yeah that you can't do that so, you know, as you get older and you just have a different take on different angle and respect for things. Um, I found myself in like a WhatsApp group with Richie recently. And um, yeah, there's like, there doesn't seem to be any problems there. And occasionally we'll like, re- like comment back to each other. But yeah, like if it's like, there's no hard feeling. I completely respect what he did. And to be honest with you, like, I think it worked out for the better in the long run anyway. Um yeah, in terms of yeah 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 it's a better thing that we made the change when we did um it didn't really hurt my career at all i, I mean as you as you say in truth it was at the start for you it yeah. wasn't the end at all it was like but yeah i think it's also like with age and being able to like put that behind like every now and then i get people come out to be like yo fuck that other plastic man and i'm like no nah, actually <laughs> he, he had every right to like do what he did and i have like zero animosity towards him or his team for what they've done at all so yeah, it's it is what it is, and uh, yeah, that was a name changing. It's good to like, kind of can laugh. I can laugh at it now. Like, it's amazing. It amazes me. I suppose it's just it was a time as well. Like now, if I wanted to like make an alias or something, the first thing I'd do is Google it and see if there's any music that like belongs to that name or something. So that's the thing, and people don't do that though. Now it's crazy. It's just like that's surely that's the first thing you do, right? That is now. You know, we didn't really have. We probably had YouTube back then, but. Um, yeah, I don't even know if we had things like Discogs back then. Maybe, maybe we did. I don't know. But yeah, I was I was too haphazard to worry about anything like that back then. Okay, well, this has been great, man. Thanks for doing it. I've got one more. Yeah, one more thing. You're an author <laughs> of a dad jokes book. Yes, aren't you? It's a very good dad jokes book, I have to say. So give us some dad jokes. Do you know what? I always get put on the spot and. Um, <laughs> oh, I'm trying to think of a, I think my favourite, one of my favourite ones is, uh, I got my missus a uh, prosthetic limb for Christmas. It's just a stocking filler. <laughs> it's not her, it's not her main present. That's <laughs> like, that's one that always comes into my, cause it's just so good. Like, but everyone always get, I was like, go on, do a dad joke. And I'm like, oh, you put me on the spot now. Like. Trying to think of one when there's so many out there is like. Well, I would I would advise everyone to buy the book because it is is pretty decent. I have to say that's enough. A nice little revenue, uh, a little spike around Christmas and Father's Day. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Cool, man. Well, listen. Thanks so much for doing this. It's been great. Yeah, man. It's been uh, it's been wicked talking to you. I'm sorry if I've chewed your ear off, mate. You know, I've got that. Like, I know at all. That's what that's what this is for. Classic radio DJ who likes to fill dead air with like my voice just. <laughs> waffling on about all sorts yeah that was plastician and i do advise you to get on amazon and get hold of his dad jokes book because it is seriously good value didn't get too much of it there but um it is it is really good i can highly recommend it and yeah it was great to get into so many different topics during that conversation 
And if you're a Web3 sceptic, as I'm recording this, the price of Bitcoin has just crashed pretty hard. But that's not really the main point of Web3 and all that stuff. Obviously, it's nice when stuff you own appreciates in value, but that's definitely not the whole thing at all. So yeah, it was great to get into that. Great to get into early dubstep stuff. And great to hear about well, the various different approaches he's taken over the years to making a living from music, because that is really one of the big topics facing all of us doing this stuff at the moment. You know, it's like the world has really changed a lot in the last two years or so. So we've all got to think about what we do and what value it has, I guess, in a slightly different way. And we got some great insights, I think, on this week's show, just in the kind of mindset as much as anything else that is valuable to have when you're thinking about all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, it was good. I think you'd agree this week. Anyway, this Friday on Hot Flush, the full EP of my collab with Bakongo is out. In fact, it's my collab plus two of his tracks, Bakongo, aka Roska, of course. So that's out this Friday, 17th of June. Get it on hotflush.bandcamp.com. And additionally to that, just a reminder from last week, uh, the second track from the Closet Ye EP that we have coming up, entitled Simmer, uh, second track entitled Red Comet is up now. And the uh, first Beatport appearance of that is also up. So it's like a product on Beatport with Heavy and Red Comet. You can jet over there if you're a Beatport person and get a hold of that. I really, really love her music. And I'm excited to get the full EP out on the 1st of July. So um, I think we're done here. Just a last reminder to leave us a review or a rating wherever you're listening to this podcast. It really does help. Please do it. If you haven't done so already, we would be extremely grateful. Get in with Discord, hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord if you've got anything to say. Or you can grab me on Twitter too, at ScoobaOfficial. And finally, follow the Spotify playlists. Link in the show notes. All the episodes plus loads of the music that we talk about. It's actually a good playlist of music now. Quite a few tracks in there. Obviously lots of proto-dubstep, early grime in today's update to that list. Anyway, I'm done. See you same time, same place next week for the next episode of the Not A Diving Podcast. Thank you. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.